Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be dismayed. The word means to dart the eyes. Don't look around. I am your God. I will strengthen you. Word means I will make you brave and courageous. I will help you. The word means I'll come alongside you. I'll join you, partner with you. And I will uphold you by my righteous tzedakah, the good, the right, the true. I will uphold you by my good and right and true right hand. I will do what is best for you in that moment. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a tale coming out of Jewish folklore of a rabbi that went to the synagogue one day and sat at a lectern to teach, and before he could say a word, he noticed that the class was just full of energy. And the students, instead of studying Torah, were talking busily amongst themselves. And when the rabbi sat down, he said, What's the problem? They said, the Messiah has come. Have you not heard this? The rabbi said, not a word. He walked over to the window, and he looked down the street. Then, without saying a word, went back to his lectern and began to teach. The students interrupted him and said, what should we do? He said, Go back to studying, nothing else. If the Messiah has come, why has nothing changed? In the Old Testament, salvation always means change. It's never just a change in a person's relationship with God, as it is to most evangelicals. It is always a physical, tangible, bodily, worldly, secular change of events. Change that you can see and grasp. So this has me wondering What is the gospel for people for whom nothing ever changes? Because there are millions of them, and you know some. Some are stuck with incurable diseases, some terminal diseases. Some are caught in bad work environments and there is no way out. Some stuck in bad marriages, and there is no way out. The only escape is to do something worse. What is the gospel for people for whom nothing changes? 
to people for whom the world has only pity. What is the good news when the bad news just keeps coming? Like you, I'm thinking about the people of Ukraine. So far, the UN tells us that 3.7 million people have left the country in just the last four weeks. A migration almost more than any previous. Though, geographic demographers tell us that the last 10 years from 2010 to 2020 can be defined as the decade of migration. More than 50 million people have migrated from their homes to new countries trying to find new lives. There are many reasons for this. Sometimes it's just to find a better job. But of the top five migrations in the last 10 years, the first three are all due to political unrest. So what is the gospel to the people of Ukraine? Or the people that you know? Or you? And what bothers me is when I see the news every night of children and infants being carried towards the border, of senior citizens in their 90s telling us that the atrocities today are worse than those of World War II, which they lived through and can remember. What bothers me, people, is that my gospel, maybe our gospel, seems so small when I put it in such a massive problem. My gospel feels extraneous. Doug Porter tells me in mathematics, an extraneous answer is an answer that is correct, but it does not solve the complexity of the problem. Why does my gospel seem extraneous? Even if it's right, it does not seem to solve the complexity of the problem. Why does it seem so irrelevant? If I were to go and speak to these people in lines of migration, why does it seem I would have to change the subject in order to talk about the gospel. Why can't the gospel be there already? Why do I always have to bring it and share it? Why can't it be self-evident? Why can't God be bringing it himself? And it be clear and obvious and unmistakable and overwhelming so that even the rocks cry out, it doesn't take an evangelist. That is the only gospel big enough for a moment like this. So all of this has me troubled with our gospel because Most of it is predicated on change. 
A person is in addiction or bondage, and they are delivered. A person is striving and filled with toil, and they are given Sabbath. A person is suffering with shame or isolation, and they receive innocence and union. The situation always changes. But what is it when nothing changes? So the rest of this morning is trying to work that out in front of you, which is generally a bad idea. (laughs) The way to listen to this then, as we make our way toward the table, because I think that is the place in the world where the table most belongs, not in churches, in battlefields. In shipwrecks, in terminal hospitals, patients. The way to listen to this is I'm going to tell you two stories, one from the Old Testament, one from the New, and then I'm going to try to link them with this beautiful passage from Isaiah chapter 41, which I believe was written to people in exile. In the 6th century B.C., Israel, the people of God, found themselves in exile. What this means is they were refugees, like the people of Ukraine. Only here, the bad person was not Putin, it was Nebuchadnezzar. But he did the same thing. He went into their country and he laid their villages to waste. And the people up and migrated by the hundreds of thousands to neighboring countries, all of them owned by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, two-thirds of the way into this 70-year exile, 70 years of it, seven decades of it, some of God's people had grown tired and cynical. They had colonized little communities among themselves and kept themselves away from the public so they would not be polluted. Those were the lucky ones. Most of them had already assimilated into the Babylonian Empire and they had fully changed their loyalties. They talked about the homeland, but they had truly bought into Babylonian gods that were more fashionable now. They had found new lives for themselves and for their families and they had become far better citizens of Babylon than they were ever children of God. About this time, a group, a collection of stories began to circulate throughout the people of God. Stories that parents would tell their children so their children could learn the morals of Torah, of the way with God. Some say these stories were only fables and others say they actually happened But a collection of them exists in the book of Daniel. And one of them goes like this. There was a king, Nebuchadnezzar, who one day made a 90-foot image, not to himself, 
He just made it because that's what powerful, rich governments can do. And then he ordered everyone to come out of the town and bow down in front of the image. And he said, with the help of his advisors, it's never the king, is it? It's always the advisors, that if someone did not bow down to the image, they would be thrown into the blazing furnace. Have you heard this story? Do you mind if I finish it? This is the first half of the sermon, I have to. So everyone did. They blew the horns and played the lyres, and when they did this, everyone came out and they bowed down. But there were three who did not. They were Jews. And when the advisors saw that they would not bow down, they went and told the king what was happening. So he summoned the three to be brought before him, and he said, what are you thinking? Aren't you aware of the law? I've said that when the, when the horns are blown, everyone bows down. You have not bowed down. Do you want to be thrown into the blazing furnace? And the three said, I'm guessing looking at the ground, king, live forever, but... We do not mean to offend you, and we do not need to defend ourselves against you. Our God is able to deliver us, comma, but if he does not, we still will not bow down to your image. Well, the king's disposition changed in a moment. He went from quizzical to angry. And he said to them in a loud voice, there will be no second chance for you. You will be thrown into the fire now. And he ordered the guards to stoke the fires of the furnace seven times hotter than they normally were. In fact, when they took the three to the doors of the furnace and went to throw them in, the wave of heat was so strong from the furnace that it incinerated the guards that were standing there. But the three Hebrew children were thrown into the fire anyway. No sooner had they hit the ground when the king, seated at a safe distance, looked and jumped to his feet. And he said, wait, were there not three that we had bound and thrown into that fire? I see four walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. And then he yelled from a distance the names of the Hebrew children. Come out, he said. And that the kings order the three children of Israel walked out of the fire. And their hair was not singed and their clothes didn't smell like smoke. And the king said, 
your God is the God of all other gods. Ain't that a great story? Huh? Now, because it's my nature to make things more complicated, as good as the story is, there's things about the story that just don't sit right with me, and they change the way I think about salvation. I'll list them in rapid-fire succession. Number one, the God who comes to save does not pull the children of Israel out of the fire. He enters it himself. That is a fundamentally different kind of God. God's rescue people, they don't get in the mess with them. Number two, the children of Israel are unbound, and yet they are still walking around in the fire having a conversation with one that looks like the son of gods. And I'm wondering to myself, what were they talking about? But whatever the conversation was, this is a different kind of salvation. Salvation does not mean in this story that God pulls them out of the fire. It means that he walks into it with them and that he unties their hands and then he has a very personal, I presume, conversation with his own people in the midst of the fire. And the third observation... is that the children of Israel never walk out of that fire because God sent them out. They walk out because the king changed his mind, not because God changed his mind. God was in the fire doing what God always does, staying next to the people that he loves, leaving it up to natural courses and the powers that be, as fallen as they might be, to change their minds at their own speed. But until they do, God is in the fire. And then when the king changes his mind, thanks be to God. Yes, you guys are quiet this morning. I'll try to turn my voice down. I get excited about these things. About this same time, the 6th century B.C., about the same time, some tell us that the second half of Isaiah was written. Isaiah 40 through 66 some say it was written by a person not named Isaiah. He was using Isaiah as an alias because he had more credibility. But the sermons were still the sermons of a prophet. And you can hear the language of the prophet speak to people in exile. Make straight a way for the Lord. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and never be weary. They will walk and not faint. That is the prophet's version of I have a dream. You hear language in these sermons that sound like the stories in circulation. Isaiah 43, when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. And you could see the children putting together the stories with the language and thinking in exile, this is 
is exactly what God is going to do. But church, this is a different gospel. It is not a gospel that liberates people from their crises. It is the gospel of a God who enters the crisis with them. So much of our gospel is formed on one preposition but not on another. It's always God is for us, which means God is my substitute. But there is a gospel called God is with us in the midst of the trouble. He doesn't come to me as deliverer. He doesn't come in place of me as a substitute. Not here, not now. He comes as a fellow sufferer. And this model of salvation is not predicated on the idea that we must solve a problem. No, it's built on the premise that there are some problems in this world you can't solve. Not now, anyway. And the only way to help people is to enter the problem with them and let it change on its own. And I think there is a time and there is an audience for this gospel. And using the language of Isaiah, here is what I would tell them. One, God has chosen you. He has not rejected you. He has called you. You belong to God. Sometimes righteous people suffer not because they are out of God's will, but because they are in it. Not because we lack faith, but because we have it. Sometimes we suffer not because we need to be possessed by the Holy Spirit, but because we already are. Strong faith does not mean less suffering. But more suffering always can mean stronger faith. Because there in the fire, we have conversations with God that are truly redemptive. They could not happen any other place. So even though you want out of this as quickly as you can, the day will come shocking as it seems, when you will be so glad for the things you have done with God in this dark place that you wouldn't trade them for anything else. And some of you know this. Many of you have said to me, I wouldn't give back the worst days of my life. Two. God is with you. Not just for you. Therefore, what happens to you here is happening to, <laughs> to the Son of God at the same time. It 
So we have nothing to teach God about suffering. We have nothing to tell him. John Stott said, were it not for the cross, I myself could not believe in God. Do you know why? Because most of the rest of our lives is so hard that you find in the cross one who fully resonates with every nuance of your loneliness. Three. Because God is with you, God will sustain you. (laughs) He will give you courage by the day that you don't have. But you can't have tomorrow's courage today. You walk into it. You don't carry it with you. So you will have to go day by day, hour by hour, knowing that when you need it, God will give it to you. And he will help you, come alongside you, join you, partner with you, and he will uphold you by his righteous right hand. He will do for you what is best for you in that moment. And fourth, God himself will redeem you. It's a family term. It means when someone in the family was sold into slavery because they could not pay a debt, the member of the family that had the most assets had to go and use their own assets to liberate the person from debt. That was called redeeming. God will do that for you. He will tap into his own assets and he will one day free you and redeem you from the things that hold you down today. Now, the second story. And this one's faster. Relax. They tell us that many stories in the Gospels are simply illustrations of principles that were established in the Old Testament. And this story in Matthew 14 fits into that category. There was a time when Jesus sent the disciples to go across the sea in a boat. He himself stayed on shore. (laughs) Mm. So... While they're halfway across the sea, Jesus is alone with God in solitude. He's having a time, and they're having one of their own, because halfway across the sea, the winds start to come out of nowhere. Those that have been on the Sea of Galilee knows this happens all the time. And the waves start beating against the ship, And the disciples drop sail and they grab the oars and they start rowing ferociously trying to stabilize the boat. This goes on for hours according to the Gospels until finally in the darkest moment one of them peers over the hull of the boat and here comes Jesus walking on the water to the disciples in the midst of the storm, 
The disciples are terrified because they think he's a ghost. But Peter, because he either lacks, well, sense, or fear, shouts to the figure walking across the boat. When he hears the words of Isaiah, don't be afraid, it is I. And Peter says, if it's you, then call me to come to you. And Jesus standing in the thick of the waves, says, all right, come. And Peter steps over the boat, and he starts walking on the water out to meet Jesus. Suddenly, when he feels that the waves are more than he bargained for, he gets nervous. And when he gets nervous, the storm gets bigger. And when the storm gets bigger, he starts going down. And now he cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus waits for it, reaches out, and grabs his right hand. And pulls him up. Then... The two of them walk on the water together, I guess. I don't think Jesus hoisted him. I think because he's got him, they're walking on the water together, and then they climb into the boat together, and then the storm dies down. In other words... There is no mention in Matthew 14 that Jesus ever calmed the storm. It just said Jesus got into the boat and the storm calmed itself. And the same three principles apply. Here is a God that doesn't calm storms, he walks into them. Gods should calm storms because that's what gods do. But this one walks into the thing he could have solved and that is a different kind of God. Then, he calls Peter to join him in the storm without calming it. That is a different kind of salvation. And finally, they get into the boat together. And in Matthew, at least, the storm calms itself. That is a different kind of power. The word of the Lord this morning is that God is with you. And that's not a consolation. That is pure gospel. That God is even now in whatever you're facing or the people you know strengthening you, helping you holding you up by his righteous right hand. 
so that even though you walk through the waters, they will not overwhelm you. And when you go through the fire, you will not be burned, for I am the Lord your God. I love you. Oh, that's pure gospel, church. Some of you this morning are in the very place I've just described. Maybe more of you know people in the place I've described. If you have found yourself as lost for words as I have in the last few weeks, may God take something we have learned this morning and use it. If not for you, for them. If you've come prepared to serve communion, please find your way to the tables. If you have children that are upstairs, please, you may go now and find those children. I think the best way to see the Lord's table today is not in terms of the elements, but in terms of the place. You're familiar with the elements, but you always assume those happen in church. The place is just as important, and this morning the place is a place of unanswered prayer undeserved suffering, unrelenting evil, unimaginable loss, there in the darkest of places is a table.